0: Hello everyone and welcome to Autism Stories, where we connect you with amazing people that help autistic adults and teens to become more successful. I'm your host Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. In the last year or so, we have seen an increase in the number of our clients that have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and the impact that it has on one's life. However, what is Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and what can this teach us about autism? We discussed this and much more with Emily Casanova, Research Assistant Professor with the University of South Carolina Medical School at Greenville. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Emily, thanks so much for joining us today. Now, you are currently a Research Assistant Professor with the University of South Carolina Medical School at Greenville with one of your focus areas on autism. What brought your focus to this particular area? Oh,
1: gosh. Well, it was uh, some, some time ago, during my undergraduate career. And started, uh, I took a part-time job as an ABA therapist for, uh, for First Steps of Missouri. And at that rate, you, <laughs> you don't need an excessive amount of training to work with the, the really, really young kiddos. And um, so that that kind of started me off, and I started reading some literature on the topic, and uh, um, also kind of realized that I was spectruming myself. And so both of those things kind of you know got me a lot more into you know the study of autism. And uh, at the time being a psych major, I was not yet. You know, pointed in the direction of research, but uh, uh, truthfully, my, my interest in autism kind of veered me that way. So, um, really, I am a, a researcher because of autism, rather than the other way around.
0: <laughs> now, another area of yours that that some of our listeners may not be too familiar with is Ehlers Danlos syndrome. Can you share for those that may not be aware what the this condition is involves? Right, yeah. So um,
1: Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I should say syndromes, um, it's currently a, a collection of 13 different conditions. Uh, and the most common type now is known as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. And that makes up probably about 80 to 90 percent of the whole Ehlers-Danlos population. There's unfortunately no really good current prevalence rates. That's something that we're in dire need of. But considering the the criteria for Ehlers-Danlos has changed considerably just within the last two years, obviously. There's kind of a shifting diagnostic. The, the basic thing that, that people would probably recognize if they have heard of something like joint hypermobility syndrome, that has very close ties with Ehlers-Danlos, and in general it's believed to kind of be on a spectrum with that hypermobile form of PDS. And Nowadays, uh, joint hypermobility syndrome is called hypermobility spectrum disorders. Or if the individual really isn't experiencing um, a lot of, of um, impairment, physical impairment, because of the condition, then it, it's uh, usually just termed um, uh, asymptomatic joint hypermobility. But ultimately, one of the major criteria you can probably, probably glean is um, is basically joint hypermobility or double jointedness. And usually it requires uh, something called generalized joint hypermobility, so a certain number of joints um, need to be affected in order to kind of make cutoff. But then when we're talking about hypermobile EDS in particular, there's some other features as well that are now part of the new criteria, the 2017 criteria. Um, and that, that talks about other kinds of... Um, features of the connective tissue, which which uh, of course lends towards this hypermobility, um, but also tends to affect the skin in certain ways and um, healing and um, just just other other features that are related to connective tissue that kind of holds the body together. And um, so, yeah, u- ultimately um, we don't know how common or rare it is. Um, It's believed that the hypermobile form of EDS is um, fairly common, but sadly, we we just don't have numbers right now. We do know that probably about 2% of the population in general has some kind of hypermobility spectrum disorder that has generalized hypermobility and some kind of pain and impairment. Um, So that's actually fairly common. Um, but uh, yeah it's still a growing area of research and, and hopefully we'll have some of those answers over the next coming years because there's a,
0: a lot of need uh, need for it now, through Autism Personal Coach and our coaching we're seeing some of the people that, that we work with who have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome what is the scientific research out there saying in regards to this connection? Sadly at the moment is kind of sparse most of
1: the most of the data that we have at, at present is more anecdotal as I said we don't really have prevalence rates for elder Janlos period and we definitely don't really have prevalence rates as far as how frequently it's overlapping with autism from uh, knowing the patient community intimately that the Elder Janler community I mean um, you know it, it does appear that autism or the broader autism phenotype is pretty common in this population. If I had to guesstimate, and don't quote me on this, but I would say probably a good 10% maybe of the ehlers population also has um, a diagnosis of autism or would meet current criteria. Um, and then my guess would be probably roughly another 20% would fall in that broader autism phenotype. But again, it's, it's early days. Um, there's also some problems with, with the fact that a, a, lot of the, a lot of the individuals with other families, of course, they're, they're usually uh, not cognitively impaired. All right? So they don't have any kind of diagnosis of intellectual disability. And as we all tend to know, kind of the, the, the higher up that ladder you get in terms of, of cognitive ability, um, autism tends to be harder to, to diagnose. Um, it doesn't always conform to the, the gold standard research ADOS version. So, again, I, I suspect probably a number of individuals are going to be missed um, that, that do kind of fall along that autism spectrum. It, it, it's kind of hard to tell at the moment. But, uh, but yeah, we are, we are definitely seeing some significant overlap. I'm seeing it in our uh, research study, uh, one of our research studies, uh, that we're doing right now, a uh, clinical study, um, and I'm working with moms of kiddos with either uh, autism or ADHD, and um, so I'm definitely seeing uh, some very EDS familiar features in some of these uh, moms who, many times themselves, are on the spectrum or pretty darn close to it. So I think over the next, you know, few years, maybe five five years or so. I think we should have some, some good numbers, I hope, and get a better handle on how frequently these conditions are, these two spectrum conditions are, are co-occurring. So, um, and we're seeing it a lot in families too. It's not always necessarily the individual with EDS who also has autism, but it may be a family member who has autism. So it kind of pops up in different, in different versions across different family
0: members. Now, recently you wrote a wonderful article about what Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome can teach us about autism, and you discussed how ED and autism could be connected based on collagen. How does collagen have such an important role in this possible connection? Well,
1: I should first off that we don't necessarily know that the hypermobile form of Ehlers-Danlos is definitely a collagen-based condition at its root, That's kind of an assumption that many of the other forms, the rarer forms of LH-Danlos often have mutations in collagen related genes, but uh, at at present we don't know that that is definitely the case um, because uh, hypermobile EDS is probably more common and in in such greater number usually that indicates that it's more of a complex type of condition, sort of like autism, so that there's probably a um, It's probably pretty heterogeneous um, in terms of any kind of genetics that may underlie it. And uh, so I should just say that first and foremost, that's kind of how I come at it. I come at it as I've learned to come at uh, at autism. Autism occurs in many different shapes and forms and and across many different types of people. and, And for those who do have some kind of genetic component to their autism, that, that is clear and definable I should say um, it's it's highly variable and so the common denominator ultimately is kind of the brain and behavior kind of funnels through a particular into a particular type of syndrome or or, or group of behaviors so I look at allergies and rather like that that even though we're not really focusing on the brain in this case per se it's still probably a whole different group number of different conditions that are funneling into a common set of uh, symptoms and so with that, yes, it's probably affecting collagen somehow and um, how that's overlapping uh, and and potentially um, increasing the likelihood of autism, that's that's difficult to say at this point because there's just been so little work. Um, At the moment we do know that they overlap and we have a little bit of idea of what may be going on with Ehlers-Danlos but it's still kind of hypothetical at the moment. But uh, as far as a few possibilities, if collagen is definitely affected, and this kind of the, shall I say, culprit in this instance, for, for want of a better word, and we're talking about brain development, well, collagen, although it's not very well studied, is definitely important for brain development. And it kind of acts like a scaffold for the developing brain. And so, um, obviously, if you affect collagen, that could potentially alter brain development in some way. The other alternative uh, that that I'm particularly interested in is that a lot of people with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome often have immune disorders, and so we already know that um, the maternal immune system can potentially play a role in the development of autism in the child, and so we're looking, um, I'm more interested really in what the mother's immune system may be doing to influence uh, whether or not that child goes on to have traits of autism or not, but again, there there, there may be other um, alternatives as well. It's kind of an open field at the moment. But there's some there's a few promising avenues of potential research, I think, in terms of how these essentially these hereditary connected tissue disorders, which is a large group of conditions of which Ehlers Danlos is just one, or or I should say thirteen rather, um, how they may influence. Brain development. And Elder Samos is definitely not alone. There are definitely some, should I say, probably whisperings of, of other hereditary connective tissue disorders and are links with autism, um, as such as uh, Lois deep syndrome, which uh, is a more severe syndrome and can have uh, severe heart effects, unfortunately, um, as well as Marfan syndrome. But again, that's, those aren't especially well studied, but there are a number of case studies out in the literature and some small studies. But, uh, yeah, so it's still early days, unfortunately, but I think that's also exciting because we have some potential avenues to continue to look into in order to better understand, you know, why are these co-occurring and then how can our understanding of the biology of ehlers better help us to understand the biology of some types of autism within certain
0: families. Now, starting in 2016, you and some of your colleagues started to look at the connection of ED and autism by conducting some diff- different surveys. I know one of the surveys had over 700 people respond. Were there any surprises that resulted from these responses?
1: Yeah, I think probably some of the most surprising for me, which I really wasn't looking for at the time, and of course now I am. <laughs> um, but was that uh, there was a surprising number of mothers with other siblings who reported having autistic kids. Um, and in our in the population that we we surveyed, it was about twenty percent. Granted, that's that's not a definitive prevalence rate. we would need to actually go in and, and look in at, at like clinics that are serving L less populations and and get a better idea of how frequently moms within those populations are, are having have autistic kiddos but you know because there's always potential bias with surveys of course um, but the, that was a, a huge number and actually it was no different than the rate that we saw um, of uh, autistic moms reporting having autistic kids. Both of them, about one-fifth of them had had the autistic kids. So that was um, pretty huge to us and, and, and is really pointing towards a, you an know, area of research that I think is exciting and that I think more researchers, I really wish more researchers would get into studying that overlap, especially as these conditions can be, in terms of Ehlers-Danlos and the hypermobility spectrum disorders, they can really be impairing. Um, I'm I'm also a patient. I'm not I'm not just a, a researcher, and I can vouch for the for the impairment. It's it's a challenge, um, and uh, although I am one of the lucky ones who's still capable of working, thankfully, so I, I really do feel like it's kind of my, my joy and my responsibility to really try and figure this out. That because there are a lot of a lot of people out there suffering who may be bedridden, etc. cetera. Um, but anyways. Yeah, so that was a really exciting finding, um, and I think it holds a lot of great potential. Uh, The other thing that we found was that when um, PES moms, the ones who had autistic kids, they tended to report more immune problems, and so again, that kind of sparked my interest in um, some of the influences that the maternal immune system in LRH-DAML may potentially be influencing the likelihood of autism in the child. So um, again, that it's early days, and that was a um, you know a self-reported survey uh, study. So um, that's something we really are hoping at, at some point to follow up clinically um, to really confirm whether that's uh, that is indeed the case. But um, but yeah, both of those those results in particular were um, very exciting to me, um, and I think hold some
0: uh, some promise in terms of research. So. And you mentioned. That there's been a lack of research regarding this connection. Why do you think there has been li- so little research trying to find out what the connection between EDS right. and autism is?
1: I would say first and foremost, um, it's a lack of communication. <clears throat> you know, the the research community tends to be very removed from uh, individuals with. A given condition, whether that's autism or Ehlers-Danlos, and so it was simply by me having been a patient myself and integrating into the patient community that I really started hearing a lot about autism. And as an autism researcher, you know, I thought, well, wow, this is this is a great area for me to research because really, hardly anybody's doing this. So um, it's unfortunate. Um, I can understand why. For instance, some of these patient groups, like their Facebook groups, they're closed to people if you don't have the condition or suspect you have the condition. So, of course, there's kind of a, you know, there's kind of a boundary there. But in general, uh, you know, I think it's just um, kind of status quo for researchers not to interact too much with the group of people that they're studying um, or to, even if they do in terms of uh, clinical studies, they don't really get to, you know, just socialize with them too much and just kind of have a nice sit down and say, you know, what, what really, what are the things that are bothering you most and how can I help? I see that as probably the biggest barrier as to why Ehlers-Danlos and autism, why that overlap has not been studied earlier than this. Simply because of that division between researchers and individuals with the condition, um, there are there is a growing number of patient scientists, thankfully, with uh, within the LRC and LOS and hypermobility spectrum disorder community. So I'm I'm looking forward to continuing to see more research coming out of those laboratories because I think it um, I think in general they're they're kind of right uh, you know right on gear in terms of what patients are wanting to see in research um, and I hope I'm also kind of addressing that I know I'm I'm not necessarily addressing issues that affect impairment, you know and, and somebody's ability to get out and enjoy themselves in a day-to-day life that sort of thing I'm I'm a little bit more focused in terms of the neurodevelopmental aspects but but that's what I am that's where my experience lies and I feel like that's where I can best help people too yeah that's that's how I see it. I'm really hoping that the scientific community will start to see that this overlap, I think, is very significant and this may be influencing a lot of the individuals that they're trying to treat or study. <clears throat> and so, um, in order to try and help that, we I have applied, um, I've submitted an application for um, a special interest group at, the, um, at, at INSAR 2020, um, which is the, the major research autism research uh, conference that, that occurs this year in May. And I have invited a number of scientists, but I'm also inviting a lot of um, the uh, individuals with these conditions who fall on both of these spectrums so that they can talk as well. And I'm really hoping that that can start communication. And that that may spur on a few of these other laboratories to start looking into this overlap, because I mean there's so many potential areas to study. You know, the few people who are kind of looking at these areas, you know, it, there's not enough of us. We really need more um, more scientists to take part in this. So, um, and I think it's just a really promising area. Um, I really am seeing a lot a, a spectrum of hypermobility. Um, for instance with the moms that I'm seeing and um, you know I these moms in general I'm find, we're finding are are more impaired physically um, they have more health problems um, than their ADHD mom counterparts and uh, you know and, and they, they they are more likely to have pain a significant pain associated with their hypermobility again you know this is this is kind of a Uh, they're just kind of, uh, you know, silently suffering, these families, in terms of pain and inflammation and impairment. And I think this is something that um, I'm sure is also, you know, affecting the autism spectrum itself, Um, particularly women. Uh, A lot of these conditions, especially the hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos form, is almost predominantly women. So it's a little bit, in some ways, the opposite of autism, where you may, may see more more males that are more obvious or, or more frequently diagnosed, but with EDS, it's, it's women. And um, uh, not exactly certain why, but probably the way that estrogen influences the stability of connective tissue, and that for males with testosterone, there's just kind of a protective effect. Um, so even if they're kind of for want of a better word, carriers of a connective tissue disorder, they may be less obvious and and go under the radar. Anyways, uh, yeah, so I'm really hoping that at, at, uh, you know, at INSAR this coming year, you know, that we'll, we'll have some good attendance for that special interest group, um, which will unfortunately probably be about, at about seven in the morning. So it does take a little dedication if you're, if you're wanting to attend. But, um, you know, but I really do encourage anybody, uh, anyone on the spectrum, our families, anyone, any scientists who are attending and um to to join into that uh, special interest group because we really want to do a good brainstorming session um, on how to improve interest in this area, which I, I see uh, a lot of uh, people with these conditions are, are really calling for, um, and we just haven't met that need yet. So I hope
0: we can start to do that. Now I know you've taken things a step further beyond these surveys that you're, and you're now conducting your first clinical study on the possible connection between autism and Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. How is the study going? And is it too early, or do you have any initial results from this study? Yeah,
1: um, the the study that that uh, you're referring to is the one where I'm looking at at moms. Um, of kiddos with either autism or ADHD, or both. Um, and uh, as I said, we're, we're seeing that these moms are a lot more impaired uh, physically and medically and, um, and that many of them have subtler features of and loss. We have had a couple of individuals uh, in our study who have gone on to get an ehlers loss diagnosis. Because of our, our study, referred them on to uh, genetic counseling after afterwards. Yeah, we're 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 very excited about this. It's, it's a small study uh, currently, and we're we're hoping to expand. It's kind of a preliminary study, um, but we are seeing some um, potentially significant differences between these two uh, mom populations. So yeah, we're we're looking forward to continuing to kind of tease that apart. Um, we're also st- um, Starting a study um, looking at um, overlap between Damos and um, Fragile X premutation uh, carriers, um, in part because we're also starting to notice that there's a number of premutation carriers who have had either uh, previous diagnoses of hypermobile Elsheimlos before, you know, for instance, they had a child that was diagnosed with Fragile X, and then they were diagnosed as a premutation carrier. Um, and, and it was previously recognized in the literature that, that premutation carriers and, and people with fragile X do have some features of, of hereditary connective tissue disorders. It's just that we, we haven't realized until now how significant that was, and that um, there may actually be a subset of individuals with um, a diagnosis of hypermobile Ehlers-Stanlos syndrome who may actually be premutation carriers instead. And so, um, we've got a paper that we are submitting soon, a series of case studies. Um, hopefully that will be coming out in the next however many months, sometime this spring, I'm, I'm hoping. And we've done a little work on, on, on that paper. We're collaborating with, uh, with some folks at the Mind Institute, Dr. Dr. Rondi Hagerman, uh, who, who runs the Fragile X Clinic there. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh. So we're really hoping that also this will kind of open up additional interest in terms of hereditary connective tissue disorders and autism, because obviously there's a big link between Fragile X and autism. That's definitely one thing that um, we hope that um, clinicians will start testing for when they have somebody who comes to them who has some kind of hypermobile spectrum-like disorder or or something that really does genuinely look like eller danlos syndrome, that they at least Try to rule out that it's not fragile X premutation, um, which is something important because fragile X premutation, in, in terms of the female population, occurs in about 1 in 150 women. And that's a lot. Um, so it's actually quite common. Uh, and the majority of individuals um, are probably not diagnosed uh, because most of them usually only get diagnosed if someone in their close family has a diagnosis of fragile X syndrome. Um, usually, that's the only way that they ever get diagnosed. So, probably at most, maybe, perhaps one tenth of individuals with premutation or even less may actually get a diagnosis and never realize that they're premutation carriers. But of course, with that premutation comes potential risk for uh, developing these this kind of Ehlers Danlos like phenotype, and um, it doesn't happen in all of the in, all individuals with. Premutation, but we're certainly seeing it in some, and uh, we're seeing some individuals who meet criteria for Ellis Danlos syndrome with flying colors. With the exception that there's a, an exclusion criteria where you can't have another connective tissue disorder. But if you didn't know they were premutation carriers, they would be walking out with an Ellis Danlos diagnosis. So, anyways, um, yeah, we've got a few good things going on, and um, you know, I. I very promising, and um, I'm looking forward to hopefully extending these to some larger, more intricate studies, you know, where we can really start teasing things apart uh, even more.
0: Now, for our listeners that think that they could possibly have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome or maybe someone that they know, what are some signs or symptoms that they should look for?
1: Traditionally, hypermobility or double jointedness is one of the, the easiest features probably to, to identify or to notice. And I will say that most of the people that I have, I won't say diagnosed with joint hypermobility, but um, they were most of them were not aware that they even had generalized joint hypermobility. Um, you, you don't have to, you know, have bent yourself into a pretzel in order to, um, have you know to be double jointed, and so um, you know, the, the, typically the the um, the criteria that's used to diagnose generalized joint hypermobility clinically is uh, the Beighton criteria um, that's spelled B E I G H T O N. And, um, and there's a lot of things online that'll show um, that, you know, diagrammatically that can show an individual what are the different things that, that typically the physician might look for. The other thing is some kind of uh, chronic pain or impairment or instability of joints. Um, are there, um, you know, kind of chronic dislocations or, or also subluxations, um, which is a, a more minor dislocation where the joint kind of pops out and goes back in on its own. You know, I would say anybody who has chronic issues with pain, you know, could be a potential candidate for looking more into that. It could possibly be something like fibromyalgia, of course, which is primarily muscle pain. But if it's something that's centering around the joints, that's, that's definitely something to um, potentially look into. Uh, also to rule out that it's not some kind of autoimmune disorder as well, um, which are more common also in these conditions, just because immune disorders are, are more common in general. So, you know, in general, there's not a lot of folks out there who are really familiar with how to do this diagnostic assessment, unfortunately. I hope that changes over time. It would be great at some point if, you know, primary care physicians could get a little training and learn how to, uh, you know, do this uh, just in their, their clinic because it's not a super difficult assessment, um, with the exception of, of course, of having to send somebody to get an echocardiogram just to make sure that they don't have any heart issues. But otherwise, everything else you know, can be done really just by experience and, and, uh, and uh, as well as a goniometer, which allows you to measure angles of joints. I'm, I'm a firm believer of always using a goniometer and not eyeballing things. Oftentimes, people will try to get in with a genetics clinic. That's probably one of the best places in general to try, <clears throat> primarily because they are already usually... Well, um, familiar with how to um, do these sorts of physical measurements. They're doing many of these things um, with other rare conditions anyway, so um, that's kind of the group of physicians that are going to be probably most experienced with how to do this, this kind of assessment. Whether they want to send you on for genetic testing as well, I think that's always a good idea to rule out more serious stuff like vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. And also, too, in the case that we're talking about um, with fragile X pre-mutation, um, that's something else that may be good to rule out, although currently is not an accepted part of the genetic panel for ehlers so don't be surprised if, uh, if a geneticist looks at you cross-eyed and like you've grown another head. But hopefully in the coming years that may start to be a little bit more common because I think we've got some good data that suggests this should at least be a good rule-out for folks who have an Ehlers-Danlos like phenotype um, or even just hypermobile spectrum disorder phenotype. Uh, I'm a big proponent of going for the genetics clinics. Sadly, a number of the clinics have started to refuse accepting Ehlers-Danlos and hypermobile spectrum disorder referrals primarily because there's so many of us. Um, And there's also a little bit of a... a little bit of ill will, I would say, because there's no agreed upon genetic component. Sadly, I think Ehlers-Danlos sometimes gets treated a little bit like chronic fatigue syndrome used to be treated more, um, and is almost kind of uh, treated like a psychogenic uh, condition, of course, which it's it's not. So yeah, I hope, you know, as we continue to learn more about the variable genetics that probably underlies this very complex group of conditions known as hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. I, I hope that will start to change and that we'll see more, uh, again, willingness from genetic centers to, you know, to, to do additional testing and to take this condition a little bit more serious once more. I'm, I'm not a big fan of rheumatologists in general. Um, not that they're all, you know, um, they're not all bad. There are some fantastic rheumatologists who can definitely do an LHD animals assessment. Um, but in general, I, I've noticed that the field as a whole Tends to take a very negative view of the condition and it's kind of patronizing. So I would just say be cautious. If you don't have a choice, there's not much else you can do. But if you have a choice to choose between a rheumatologist or, for instance, a geneticist or something, I would probably go with the latter. <clears throat> so um, people are also welcome to, to contact me by email. I've got my science over a cuppa at gmail.com where they can reach me, and uh, I'm I'm always happy to answer questions and give a little guidance, you know, so um, they're, they're always welcome to do that as well.
0: And talking about guidance, if someone does have Ehlers-Danlos, what are some strategies or guidance you have for them that may be helpful in dealing with the challenges of the syndrome?
1: That's really variable. Some people like myself may be relatively minimally impaired and can deal with things with, uh, you know, a variety of medications in terms of relieving inflammation and, and pain um, and trying to maintain some form of, of cardiovascular exercise. Um, but there are just some folks that are so severely affected that's just not going to be um, a, a reasonable, uh, especially in terms of the exercise. Um, there, are, there are some folks that do end up in wheelchairs and, and need other types of mobility devices and, and, and trying to push through the pain is not a good thing, uh, especially with somebody who probably is going to be having issues with chronic inflammation, pain just tends to um, kind of have a snowball effect um, on inflammation. Unfortunately, individuals with ehlers standless often have dysautonomias or autonomic disorders, um, stuff like postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS, or also orthostatic hypertension. You know, both of those, unfortunately, both of those actually usually do a little bit better with exercise, uh, particularly cardiovascular exercise. So it's really hard. Some of the some of the uh, treatments are contradicting. So um, I personally feel feel better when I'm able to do my regular cardiovascular exercise, but there are definitely days where I can't do that, and I feel too horrible, um, and you just kind of have to wait it out, but um, Ehlers-Danlos, in general, has a lot of different problems that come with it. It's not just pain and inflammation. It's almost like if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong, and I I generally have a saying um, that if it's weird, it'll happen in Ehlers-Danlos and it happens frequently that unfortunately can lead to a lot of er visits and then also a lot of ptsd because many times if it's weird the person you know the doc at the er is not necessarily going to give you the treatment that you need and may even um, cause a certain amount of psychological trauma that's that's extremely common um and also unfortunately being that this tends to be more of a female dominated condition there are biases in um in the medical field as well in terms of female associated conditions and pain and um, just an implication that often these things are psychogenic and it's all coming from the brain and um and that's that's definitely not the case so um but sadly they're treated that way you know I don't have a good one size fits all because every every person's condition can be so unique. What may be disabling for one person may not be too bad for another. So um, it, it really just varies. I highly recommend uh, for anybody who thinks that they may be on this, this Ehlers-Danlos spectrum to try to get in with some of the online patient groups, such as with Facebook. Um, I found them especially helpful. There's a huge wealth of knowledge, and many times they're more helpful than the doctor's. Um, I won't say avoid doctors entirely, there are obviously certain things you definitely need to uh, see a physician for, and don't just trust the, uh, um, you know, Google. But, but there's a lot of practical um, approaches that folks on, you know, um, in these communities have learned how to do, and they um, sometimes they can be extremely helpful, so that you don't essentially have to reinvent the wheel all over. So um, I highly recommend. Getting in with the online community. There's also a good community on Twitter. If you just hashtag ehlers Love Syndrome, no hyphens. You know, there's a lot of, of folks there that are, are talking about their condition and, and uh, asking for advice or giving advice. So that's another great resource. And uh, you know, just just in general, the patient community is awesome, and uh, we all kind of go through it together. So it's definitely a, a wonderful social support as well. Um, which I think is vital for for anyone who uh, just is suffering with physical pain. It can be draining and it can be stressful and and with a chronic condition a lot of times even your close family members may not really understand. Having um, other people to talk to who um, really are going through many of the same things that you may be going through can be a a really phenomenal um, social support and that is just so vital um, just for one's own mental well-being, um, because that really underlies our physical well-being as well. So um, that would be that would be my my main recommendation. But otherwise, there's just so many different things that can go wrong with Alzheimer's, and hypermobile spectrum disorders, and it's you kind of band-aid everything. You know, you, you you take each symptom as it as it comes. But but the patient community can help with help you know with figuring out what band-aids may actually
0: be for you and i would i'd echo that uh suggestion about the facebook groups because i've known a couple of people that have went that have been a part of those groups that had specific questions and they were able to get some good feedback that really helped them definitely most definitely well emily i really thank you for your time today it was a great conversation Oh, my pleasure. And like
1: I said, if um, anybody has more questions, they're always welcome to find me with my Gmail. Um, you can also follow my blog as well, which is Science Over a Cup of. You can find my my, my email through there as well. And there are some and danlos related and autism-related articles on that blog. Um, but also, too, if I ever have any um, new studies that are coming out, like any new papers, or if I'm advertising for any kind of online studies I will also do it through that blog so it may be a good idea to follow that as well and kind of keep up with that Um, I don't post super super frequently maybe about once a month but um, but every once in a while I will put something up about our current work um, and if you're interested in following that's a good place to keep up with
0: it thank you for listening to today's episode and thanks so much to Emily for the conversation the connection between EDS and autism is so important because both are very similar in that the challenges aren't able to be seen by the naked eye. To get the support that autistic people that also have EDS need to have a better quality of life is essential. And I was thrilled to end this year with such an interview with the attempt to bring this to light. Modern life can be challenging for anyone. When you're autistic, the world isn't designed with your unique traits in mind and everyday demands can feel insurmountable. At Autism Personal Coach, we celebrate neurodiversity by empowering adults and teens to be the best version of their authentic selves. The people we serve are the real experts. We're here to help their goals become a reality. To get an autism coach for a loved one or yourself, you can contact us at Autism Personal Coach at yahoo.com or call 216-336-5889 and request a coach today. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will talk with Chris Hall about his business, Computers for the Autistic Foundation. Talk to you then.